Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Oh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and 10 times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have reached the Internet's finest podcast for music brought to you by Silver Shamrock Novelties. We're going to start this episode off, like every episode, with a little bit of trivia. You know more than I know. You know more than I know. You know more than I... All right, I'm going to start with our audio trivia tonight. And this episode is our yearly Halloween episode. So Joe hopefully did some sort of cool sound effect to my voice right there. Dracula did. Of of course I will. Yep. Yes. Um, Yeah, you sound terrifying. (laughs) Great. Perfect. So my quiz is basically uh, the human centipede of audio quizzes. So what I did is I uh, took six movie soundtracks... Three clips of uh, horror movie villains speaking, and three iconic clips from three other movies, mashed them all together. And so your job is to tease out what 12 horror movie films are represented in this one long clip. Okay. So let me say that one more time. So there's going to be six soundtracks, and they're, they're going to climb on top of each other. So we'll start with one. Then I'll add another one after 10 seconds, and then another one, another one. And then embedded within there is going to be three classic scenes, the sound effects from those classic scenes, and then three classic horror villains speaking. Your ultimate goal is to tell me what 12 horror movies are in this clip. Okay, this is a lot of work. Yeah, you, you probably won't get them all. It's really hard. Okay. Because it's our Halloween episode. Okay, Joe, how many do you think you got? I think I got maybe four of the soundtracks. And I don't know, maybe a mix. I, I really am not sure if I got more than probably six total. 
Did it melt your brain? More? <laughs> yes. My brain is meltier. Good. Okay. That was my intention. Uh, we will play the clip again at the end, or you know what? Just go ahead and pause, rewind, and you can listen to it as many times as you want. See how many you can get. But we're looking for 12. And it's time for my quiz, and I have a title. It is Bobby Boris Pickett's Monster Mashup. What I'm going to do is I'm going to list Bobby Boris Pickett songs, who is known for trying to recapture Monster Mash through <laughs> a lot of other takeoffs on monster-themed songs. <laughs> okay. You need to tell me whether this is an actual Bobby Boris Pickett song or not. Okay. I like it. I can, I can dig it. Okay. Here we go. Mm-hmm. The Apprentice Vampire. No. That one is. Oh, man. Monsters in the Prairie. <laughs> no. That one is. Dang. Frankenstein Hop. No. That one is mine. You're right. That is not. Monster Rap. I don't think. Uh, yes. That is true. Yes. Okay. That is. I bet that's horrible. I, I'm not going to listen to it. <laughs> Disco heebie-jeebies. These all sound so bad. Yeah. Nope, that's mine. Next one, Disco Kong. <laughs> no. That is. Oh that is a true one. Did, did you research any of these songs? Well, I mean, what, what is Disco Kong about? Oh, no. Okay. I don't have time for that. <laughs> Come on. All right. I've got a bunch of these, so sit tight. Me, <laughs> the me and my mummy. What was that one? Me and my mummy. Sure. Yes. It is. Yep. Yep. Monster Man Jam. Yes. It is. Yep. Larry the Lonely Vampire. <laughs> No, I think that's that's somebody we know. That's yeah. I made that. I made that one up. Uh, autobiographical. <laughs> Decapitation station. No way. Nope. Have broken heart will cry. No. It is. Oh man, that's a great great song title. Yeah, that's very good. Blood bank blues. Yes. It is. Little Arson Hero. <laughs> no. That's mine. Yeah. Also autobiographical. <laughs> yes. Um, fangs a lot. I think that's too clever. I think you made that up. That's mine. Yeah, it's his earnest yeah. stuff. <laughs> the Return of Queen Kong. Sure. Back to Kong. Nope. It's mine. Oh, man. You set me up for that one. I did, yep. Simon the Sensible Surfer. Not a monster one at all, really. I would say yes. It is, yep. Then he's got a series. So he's got multiple. He goes into different series. So I'm going to continue with that. Simon the Sinister Surfer. Sure. Nope, that's mine. Simon says, so what? No. It is. It's true. Whew. Bella's Bash. Yes. 
It is. Lizard Man Mambo. I'll say yes. Nope. Mummy's Little Monster. Nah. No, it's not. Irresistible Igor, or Igor, depending on your take. Um, sure, yes. Yes, it is. Monster Minuet. Yes. Yep. Monster May I. <laughs> uh, no. That's not, yeah, that's not. Disco Psycho. Oh, man. I doubt it, but that's a good one. Yeah, it's mine. And finally, Vampire Jammies. I really want it to be, but I'm going to say no. That's mine. Oh, man. Good job. We need to go ahead and make a uh, Bobby Boris Pickett, not cover band, but a tribute. Songs he should have released at the Waffle House. Oh, man. I'm, that seems like that would be a match made in heaven. I agree. I bet on Halloween, the number one Waffle House song is Monster Mash. Monster Hash. Smothered, covered, buried. Oh, uh, <laughs> all right. Enough of that. Did you hear what Bobby Boris Pickett would be doing if he were alive today? Scraping at the top of his coffin? Absolutely. Works for so many people. I think it works really well for Bobby Boris Pickett. <laughs> He'd actually be crypt, crypt kicking, <laughs> literally. I think we should probably move along to turntable talk. It is time for a very special turntable talk. Anything can happen on Halloween. Your dog could turn into a cat. There may be a toad in your bass guitar, or your sister could turn into a bat. Christmas time brings the snow. Summertime brings the sun. But on Halloween, your blood begins to run. Something's moving going down. When I was about eight or nine years old, my dad let me stay up and watch The Exorcist with him on television. I'm still not sure if he was trying to instill a healthy Catholic fear of demons or share a father-son bonding moment over one of his favorite pop cultural touchdowns or just exhibiting a substantial lapse in parental judgment. Probably a little bit of all three. Whatever the case, the movie stuck with me. The head spinning, the projectile vomiting, the unconventional use of the crucifix. But perhaps most of all was the music. That damned piano riff and those bells repeating almost infinitely. It sounded like innocence gone bad. Those notes, divorced from satanic possession, are almost bright, but they stalked me. It might have been the first time I actually paid attention to the music in a movie. It was like a character itself, interacting with what I was seeing and what I was feeling. More than any other style of film, horror movies are reliant on their soundtracks to make them work. The music must emphasize the dread. Make the slow burn stay alit, lull us into a sense of comfort, and then strike at the moment of terror. Horror flicks control the audience's anticipations, expectations, and agitation, and the soundtracks provide the much-needed tension that holds it all together with a very fragile string. Often they are more memorable than the movie, and sometimes more evocative. About half the time, they're also better. In an interview with the BBC, Daniel Blumenstein 
A professor studying sound in film demonstrated how nonlinear sounds in horror movies reach viewers on a primal level, triggering fear response and physical emotional distress as if we were being hunted by a predator. He stated that the music in horror movies reminds us subconsciously of primordial times. There is no singular way to create an effectively terrifying or unsettling mood through sound. The music, like the movies, has evolved. Certainly, there are standbys, menacing undercurrents, microtonal pitch changes, dissonant chords, atonal swells, childlike melodies that are harshly juxtaposed visually and sonically, lots of space, lots of time for our reptile brains to realize we might be about to get chomped or beheaded or sucked into hell or attacked by hordes of furious living tomatoes. Though scary movies get unfairly bogged down with tropes, stereotypes, and conventions, there's actually a pretty fair amount of diversity in the genre itself. Beyond just monster movies, slashers, scream queens, and ghost stories, a huge array of other elements from other film styles can be brought in. Humor, drama, sci-fi, history, fantasy. And thankfully for horror movie soundtracks, this means there's a wide open field for composers and musicians to make their marks on the movies. The instrumentation goes far beyond broody organs, stabbing violins, pulsing synths, wordless choruses, atmospheric emptiness. Almost no genre and no instrument is off limits when making these scores. Elements of music concrete, classical, ambient, jazz, electronic, industrial, folk, funk, polka, and rock can all blend in seamlessly into horror soundtracks if they are done well, and if they match the movie to challenge the listener and the viewer. Today we are exploring the depths of a genre that can be ghoulishly fun, menacing, shocking, all within the same side of a record. The twists and turns that composers use to enthrall the audience and make their collective flesh crawl. The orchestral equivalence of Vincent Price whispering sweet nothings into your ear a left-out style of music that has made itself into a viable and influential genre despite being secondary to its own medium. Today, we examine the history of the horror movie soundtrack and its recent unholy alliance with the vinyl record. Horror movie soundtracks, in a delicious bit of irony, can be traced back to the silent film era. Just two years after the release of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is often considered the first real horror movie with its somnambulist murders and psychological dreamscapes, 1922's Nosferatu, a symphony of horror, upped the stakes by including original music with the movie. The composition by Hans Erdmann, sadly mostly lost to time, was played by an orchestra during the projection of the film meant to enhance the terror of the shadowy Count Orlock lurking. These films made such a huge visual mark in people's minds that many composers felt compelled, and still do, to create music to match the stark images on the screen, birthing the genre of horror soundtracks. As the golden era of movies dawned in Hollywood, Universal started wreaking havoc on moviegoers and box offices with their iconic movie monster stars. Lon Chaney, Bela Lugosi, and Boris Karloff became the homeliest sex symbols our country had seen since Abraham Lincoln. Most of the creatures were granted their own musical theme. Unfortunately, they were often forgettable, standard, heavily orchestral fare. Maybe the big exception was Franz Waxman's gorgeous and surprisingly modern musical score to Bride of Frankenstein.
one of my favorite movies ever. Waxman's success would lead him to be head of music for Universal, and he would start working with a new young director named Alfred Hitchcock. In Britain, starting in the 1950s, Hammer Horror would take the use of archetypal characters, put them in color, and increase the gothic schlock factor by some degrees. They started churning out films as fast as they could, ranging from laughable to, well, still pretty laughable. The Hammer Flicks were always fun, and it was James Bernard who is most closely associated with the production company for his frantic yet melodramatic heaving bosom orchestrations that definitely play on the character having an instantly recognizable theme. For example, anytime you heard this three Dracula note, you can bet Christopher Lee was about to sink his fangs into your fleshy neck. You mentioned earlier on at the very beginning you had that experience with your dad and The Exorcist. Yeah. When I was maybe one, and I don't remember this, my my dad tried to get me into a movie theater because he was stuck babysitting and wanted to go see a vampire movie. And it was a Christopher Lee movie, and it was The Satanic Rites of Dracula. Ooh. They did not allow him in with a one-year-old. Was that in America? It was in Greece. Oh, okay. I don't know how many of the Hammer Horrors actually made it to the movie theaters in America. Yeah, I don't know. But I, I'm pretty sure that was the movie. So uh, did they, they uh, didn't let him in? They did not. They thought he was a negligent parent, I think. <laughs> Back to Hollywood. Waxman would eventually move on and continue to be one of the greatest film composers of his era, all the while influencing another young composer named Bernard Herrmann. Herman had spent years orbiting around Orson Welles and even conducting the music on the War of the Worlds radio broadcast. However, it was his pairing with Alfred Hitchcock that would forever change the landscape of horror music. As if driven by pure tension, Herman abandoned the majority of the symphony in favor of strings on the film that would be the birth of the slasher genre, 1960s Psycho. The shower scene's screeching violin stingers are, of course, beyond famous and maybe film's most imitated piece, and are a large part of why I never bathe alone. Despite the stabbingly infamous moment, the first part of the film score is perfect in inducing a disorienting sense of impending doom. Herman's cerebral and complex score broke down the walls, showing us that there was a masterful way to score horror films, and by the late 60s and early 70s, many of the inhibitions of decades past were dead in a pool of blood, French horns, and tight sweaters. In 1968, Christophe Comita incorporated a lullaby to unsettle mothers in Rosemary's Baby. Even before that, Japanese avant-gardist Toru Takamitsu used massive moments of silence punctuated by misuses of traditional instruments, screeching metal, and splintering wood to create a haunted atmosphere for 1965's ghost story, Quite On. 
1970, Les Baxter combined his own brand of spacey exotica with H.P. Lovecraft's unspeakable horrors in the score for Dunwich Horror. Think Cthulhu on a staycay. In 1973, Paul Giovanni and Magnet somehow made traditional-sounding ballads into human sacrificial May Day carols in the seminal Wicker Man soundtrack. Of course, the aforementioned inclusion of prog rockers Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells on 1973's Exorcist turned a few heads. <clears throat> Director William Friedkin rejected the original soundtrack by Lalo Schifrin, by allegedly defenestrating the tapes like the old priest, possibly because it sounded more platonic than demonic. And then in 1976, Jerry Goldsmith used a desanctified Gregorian chant of Ave Santani, to sound like the choral accompaniment to a black mass in the omen. Horror scores were now only limited by the imaginations of the musicians and the depths of depravity they would venture into to terrorize moviegoers. A couple other movements were very important to the evolution of horror soundtracks. The Italian horror scene and the electronic music revolution. The gory history of Italian horror music is expansive enough for its own episode, but its influence on modern horror music is undeniable. Starting in the early 60s and peaking in the 70s, Giallo movies, a sort of ultra-stylish horror thriller, became all the rage with their bloody, erotic, and sometimes supernatural versions of detective stories. In terms of visceral special effects and shocking material, they were light years ahead of their U.S. counterpoints, and had the music to match. Italian soundtracks are often some of the most expensive vinyl to procure, but reissues are starting to trickle out. Bruno Nicolai is a huge name in Italian cinema music, and here is the bossa nova tinged theme to Case of the Bloody Iris. Another Stone Cold Giallo soundtrack is Nora Orlandi's sleek lounge dirge to the strange vice of Mrs. Ward.
A number of library music professionals made amazing horror music, including Piero Umiliani, Alessandro Alessandroni, and naturally, Ennio Morricone. A composer who has more recently come to some recognition is Fabio Frizzi, especially for his work on director Lucio Fulci's shock horror classics. His relentless theme to 1981's The Beyond is a perfect match of spaghetti western expansiveness and evil incarnate chanting with all the pizzazz of a withering corpse. It's a bit like hanging out with Clint Eastwood. The controversial found footage 1980 classic Cannibal Holocaust is still banned in some countries, what with all the cannibalism and, well, cannibalism. Though the film was about as subtle as a jungle machete amputation, Riz Ortolani's soundtrack invokes discomfort and fear in how delicately the music treats the subject matter. Sweet, swooning tunes and acoustic strumming make up the majority of the soundtrack, though there is the occasional synth Funk dropped in. I mean, it was an Italian horror movie after all. Here's the oh-so-pleasant title track that is so pretty that you might forget that somebody is dining on your digits. Of course, the Prague shock legends Goblin are likely the most famous rock band to make horror soundtracks. Intertwined with the colorfully violent director Dario Argento, who first turned to the band to score Profondo Russo after he was unhappy with the original score and couldn't get Pink Floyd to do it. Goblin had one night to record something to impress Argento. They did, and the soundtrack sold a million copies. They had more money, time, and freedom to work on the next movie about Coven of Witchy Ballerinas. Using weird instrumentation, barely audible whispers, and some fantastic rock grooves, 1975's Suspiria is the gold standard for horror soundtracks. Both cacophonous, creepy, and cool. Three of the members of Goblin recorded another Argento movie, Tenebre, in 1982, which is worth hearing if just for the serial killer disco vibes showing how much horror music changed from the mid-70s to the mid-80s. Bobby Boris Pickett was so mad that somebody got away with his disco idea. <laughs> They're not Italian, but we'd be remiss to not mention Popol Vuh, the innovative German collective with elements of krautrock and ambient whose relationship with director Werner Herzog led to some elegantly bleak music 
most notably the soundtrack to 1979's Nosferatu the Vampire, which is more introspective and meditative than most horror scores. It's almost pleasant, but still terrifying, like if Klaus Kinski were your Uber driver. Recognized for their unique ability to evoke supernatural sounds, electronic music instruments have long been integral in horror movies, from theremins to moog modulators and polyphonics to ondis martinot, beat blasters and ebos. The ability to synthesize startling noise is key. An early example of electronic horror is the soundtrack to 1973's Legend of Hell House by British library wunderkind Delia Derbyshire and Brian Hodgson. Even though Stanley Kubrick cut out of The Shining a majority of the Moog pioneer Wendy Carlos and her collaborator Rachel Elkin's work, What he did leave in makes for one of the moodiest intros of the entire genre. In defense of Kubrick, the other musical pieces are perfectly unnerving especially those of Polish master of dissonant unpleasantness, Krzysztof Pinsarecki, whose sound is the equivalent of the Muzak playing from the Overlook Hotel's blood-spewing elevators. With only one original vinyl pressing of The Shining, it is one of the most sought-after OG horror soundtracks. In the 1980s, several soundtracks continued to dial up the creeps. In 83, reformed krautrockers Tangerine Dream released a stellar, surrealistic soundtrack to a weird highbrow movie called The Keep. The lamest urban legend ever has since circulated that a vinyl version of the soundtrack was released, but was mysteriously pulled from all stores worldwide and thought to be only a Tangerine Dream dream. Only to later be discovered that there was proof of a strange bootleg that had actually appeared. Ooh. <laughs> the second part of that urban legend is that if you say Tangerine Dream Dream three times into a mirror in a bathroom, you'll be brained by a smug German boogeyman wielding a flaming guitar. And, and that guitar will be out of Octoon. Howard Shore's soundtrack for the body horror classic Videodrome effectively blended both conventional orchestral instrument with their digital counterparts, cleverly playing up on the movie's theme of blurred virtual realities. Long live the new flesh. 
Often synthesizers could add just enough sleaze to pass off bad, trashy movies and make them appear as worthy, trashy movies. For example, the 1980 Maniac Cyberpunky soundtrack by William Lustig is a perfect mood music for scalp hunting. This ludicrous track is called, seriously, Hooker's Heartbeat. For the classic Phantasm, Fred Miro and Malcolm Seagrave intentionally used primitive synths with settings that could not be reprogrammed to play a repetitive eight-note riff to anchor a scraping soundtrack that swirled with prog, disco, hard rock, carnival music, smooth jazz, all with eye-gouging intensity. However, there is no one more influential in making striking electronic music synonymous with horror music than film director and composer John Carpenter, who drew heavy inspiration from both Italian horror and early synth soundtracks. John Carpenter broke down the door for every would-be horror composer. In the incredibly nonconformist and low-budget world of horror movies, it made perfect sense for dudes in the basement with Roland drum machines and Yamaha synthesizers to attach their broody musicscapes to the new bounty of slasher flicks. However, what started as innovation born both of frugality and experimentation soon devolved into cheap copies. Carpenter wannabes playing keyboards propped up on stacks of Fangora magazines and D&D monster manuals. And while the music got less original and less interesting, the financial viability and value of horror movies was being noticed by major movie studios. Carpenter's start, as mentioned, was a pragmatic one. He couldn't afford to have a professional, or even semi-professional, create the music for his first few films, so he did it himself. Dark Star, Carpenter's sci-fi comedy debut, was where it all began. Well, for most of the film at least. The opening sequence, a song called Benson, Arizona, is a goofy stab at country music, with lyrics and singing provided by a college friend of Carpenter's, Bill Taylor. A million sunshine down, but I see only one. When I think I'm over you, I find I've just begun. Not especially horrific. He'd been playing music since he was a child, and his father was a music professor, so the young carpenter had been offered chances at playing the violin and piano, but they just didn't take. Carpenter had very little musical talent as a youngster, and it wasn't until his dad settled on the bongos that his son finally felt at ease. Everyone wanted to be a hep cat. <laughs> Eventually, Carpenter acquired passable piano playing and translated that to synthesizer while in college, often writing and playing scores for other film student projects. It was through the synthesizer that Carpenter realized he could create large sounds without an orchestra. The pairing of sound and image hit Carpenter like an axe through the occipital bone when he was eight years old and saw Forbidden Planet. 
The Forbidden Planet score, created by husband and wife team Bibi and Louis Barron, is all electronic and complements the images note for note. There isn't a moment of the score that isn't integral to the film. It was Carpenter's second film in 1975, Assault on Precinct 13, that his skill took a huge leap and was now able to match the sounds in his head. Using banks of synthesizers, he created the score for that film in three days. Though there are only slight modulations through most of the music, it's all perfectly placed and timed. He also hearkened back to the Hammer films by using selected motifs for selected characters. The seemingly simplistic music is arresting and matches the tension on screen. Part of what makes his music so special is the fact that he never intended it to be separated from the images, which allowed him to make decisions a record producer would have scoffed at. After this film, Carpenter gained a lot of confidence and knew that he was always going to be the best person to score his films. For him, though it started as financially practical, it became an aspect of the writing and directing. Carpenter's next film is arguably his most well-known and greatest achievement. 1978's Halloween, and its soundtrack has become one of the single most iconic scores of all time, rivaling Psycho. It was Psycho's Bernard Herrmann, along with Goblin, The Barons, and Dimitri Tomkin that were his biggest influences. Tomkin wrote scores for Strangers on a Train, Dial M for Murder, High Noon, Rawhide, and countless other staples of westerns and thrillers. Carpenter's approach for Halloween is still a minimalistic slow burn, but achieves its goal of creating anxiety and balance and dread. Using the basic piano riffs, electronic sound effects, and synthesizers, he creates an unsettling atmosphere that people hear in their heads as soon as the name of the film is mentioned. He also continued his use of the hammer trope of character themes, which helps to bring up about a mental image of Michael Myers' admirable tenacity at the first note. So I was reading an article with Carpenter and he talked about the bongos that he played with a a kid and that how that, that Halloween riff, the real, you know, choppy rhythmic staccato playing of the piano was Mm -hmm. really influenced by when he had those bongos, like the, the, just the two notes that the bongos play really was a big factor in how he wrote that song. A mere two years later, in 1980, Carpenter returns with a ghost story, The Fog, starring his always enchanting wife, Adrienne Barbeau. Carpenter made a movie and the score, and then, a month before it needed to be complete, he realized it was awful. It wasn't scary, and the score was simply a caricature of his previous ones. Over the next month, he rewrote, re-edited, re-shot, and re-scored the film, creating what is now considered another Carpenter classic. 
For the music, he made the new version much subtler, focusing more on piano than synths, creating a mood and atmosphere which quietly dominated the film, making you less likely to realize that the film itself really wasn't all that good. For the first time, the music wasn't only a compliment to the film, it was its main character. When I was in college, I got into a car accident, and um, the doctor, whoever told me I wasn't supposed to go to sleep because I was worried I had a concussion. And so, I don't know if you were there, you might have been there, but our friend Matthew, who actually helped us a lot with this episode, I remember him, he rented um, from that great video store, he rented The Fog, Mm -hmm. and he had a shift to make sure I didn't fall asleep, and I could not watch that movie. It was just so boring. And <laughs> kept falling asleep, and he'd hit me. And he's a super nice guy, and he didn't want to wake me up. Hey, hey, hey. yeah. <laughs> and I'd wake up, and it's just it's the worst possible movie to try to stay awake to. However, that that is maybe the best music out of all of his. Oh, it's great. Yeah. A year later was the sci-fi western thriller Escape from New York, and for this soundtrack, Carpenter teamed up with Alan Howarth, who ended up being becoming a partner with Carpenter Scores. Holworth, according to his LinkedIn profile, is a sonic composer whose music career started in the 1960s Cleveland pop and psych bands, Tree Stumps, Renaissance Fair, and The Silk. After that, he formed his own band, Braino, great name, after getting into synthesizers. Braino was his first attempt at electronic music, and that band evolved into another band called Pie Corporation. That's yum. P.I. <laughs> P.I. Not P.I.E. Oh. But. Okay. <laughs> which was electronic synths with weather report influences, which is why I will never listen to them. All this led to his first shot at making music for movies and for specifically Star Trek the motion picture. <laughs> this, some say, was his first foray into horror movies <laughs> and where Carpenter comes in. Holworth added depth to Carpenter's synth and pianos, but not in an overwhelming way. Though Escape from New York may sound like more of the same, there's clear growth in instrumentation and atmospherics. From 81 to 84, Carpenter and Howarth scored music for six of seven Carpenter films, as well as Halloween 3, which was neither written nor directed by Carpenter. Some of the soundtracks were simply extensions of earlier work, like Halloween 2, for example. For that film, Carpenter let Howarth do all of the work, and Howarth simply added new textures and sounds to the actual original score. Halloween 3 has been described by Carpenter and Howarth as ripping themselves off, That score ends up sounding like an evolved version of the original Halloween score, but if Tangerine Dream had made it, or Tangerine Dream Dream. The main theme for the film, Chariots of Pumpkins, is awesome. But the clip we're going to play is possibly the creepiest piece ever recorded and released by Carpenter. 
or anyone. It's an earworm. For 1982's film, The Thing, Carpenter was given his first chance with a big budget, $15 million. Had Carpenter been given an unlimited amount of time to complete the film, he probably would have scored it himself. But he instead asked Ennio Morricone to create the score. Morricone used what he already knew of Carpenter's work and created a masterful score to a troubled film. Carpenter and Holworth added small touches of electronic music, which complemented Morricone's compositions. Next for Carpenter and Holworth was Carpenter's adaptation of Stephen King's book Christine. A love story of sorts. The score is as haunting as their previous attempts, but almost feels like a best-of compilation and shows signs of exhaustion. The two fall back slightly on themes from Halloween and Escape from New York, but do add some nice flourishes on many of the tracks. From here, the golden age of Carpenter's scores had clearly ended, but he does pack some interesting punches a bit with later films. 1994's In the Mouth of Madness, for example, is basically a tribute to Metallica, and probably what inspired Lou Reed to work with him later. (laughs) That's not really madness. The one soundtrack that isn't as well-known as others, but to me is as accomplished, is for 1987's Prince of Darkness. The sounds are much darker and grow much louder than other scores by Carpenter and Holworth. As with most of Carpenter's scores, it starts somewhat slow and builds to a quickening pace. The difference with this one is that the quickening pace goes farther than anything before this. It creates an occultish tension that makes it difficult to breathe at times as a viewer. This is the soundtrack of Carpenter's that can serve as a complete album all on its own. It works with the film, but the soundtrack can be enjoyed more than once, which has never been said about that movie.
As the popularity of synth waned in the 90s, horror soundtracks had slightly bigger budgets and, in turn, went with a higher class of composer who returned the film scores to their more orchestral roots. Howard Shore's Silence of the Lambs, Mark Scheiman's Misery, and Marco Beltrami's Scream soundtracks had lusher music more in line with general dramatic film score sounds. The most interesting soundtrack of the era came from Philip Glass and his work on the bee-loving, hook-handed, urban Bloody Mary Candyman. Dream Dream. Glass used choral chanting, organ blasts, minimalist piano notes, and glockenspiel to create a hypnotic, eerie, and forceful mood throughout the film. The focus of horror film composing shifted once again in the 2000s, this time with more electronic and industrial tones. Sound design slowly saddled up next to the music, with heaping, anxious, low-frequency effects. Long periods of gritty rumbling and robotic rhythms, with punctuated moments of air raid siren blast. Think the sort of music that David Lynch plays at his barbecues. Beyond the Black Rainbow, 28 Days Later, Silent Hill, they're all excellent scores, but the one we recommend to seek out of the darkness is Under the Skin. The soundtrack for the film, about a Scarlett Johansson-shaped alien sending unsuspecting men to be minced meat in another dimension, and pretty artfully done at that, was composed by Mika Levi, who creates a sense of elemental dread in seductive packaging. She creates plagues of sound, strings, bells, and electronic atonal notes, for an unnerving but compelling experience, much like having Scarlett Johansson suck up your essence. You know, if you're looking for a great... Scarlett Johansson horror movies avoid Ghost World. I was so disappointed. It's not scary at all. (laughs) Lately, soundtracks have come full circle to fully embrace the late 70s and 80s horror music as directors and musicians lovingly attempt to recreate the sounds of their youth. The most well-known example lately is the pulsing Stranger Things soundtrack by members of Survive, Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein. They were the Eye of the Tiger guys? I think think so. That's... (laughs) classic horror (laughs) the massive hit had keyboard music that is both wistfully retro adrenaline pumping and darkly hip however we'd turn our attentions to the backing music for it follows disaster piece who had mostly worked in video game music prior scored the music for this movie about a very tenacious sexually transmitted curse and it perfectly balances the nostalgic synthy string homage flourishes with more modern moodscapes and electronic beats, and the occasional surprise klaxon. Perhaps it is no coincidence that 
The rise in erstwhile sounds has evolved along with the flood of popularity of amazing vinyl soundtracks. The recent reanimation of the horror soundtrack is glaringly apparent to anyone who collects vinyl records. The ravenous devotees who used to search flea markets, garage sales, and close down video stores for VHS copies of movies like The Love Butcher, Hitchhike to Hell, or, my personal favorite, La Mora, Lady Dracula, now have another avenue to satisfy their compulsive need for ghastly rarities. Horror soundtrack labels fuel the gory obsession with bleakly beautiful collector's vinyl. The soundtracks are meticulously crafted, featuring some of the best-looking cover arts and craziest colored wax you can imagine. A full palette of PVC colors that have been slashed, splattered, and swirled into the vinyl like blood on a kill room tarp. Many have exhaustive liner notes and histories, eye-popping artwork, sometimes of eye-popping, posters, prints, and paraphernalia. Oh, and many of them are incredibly limited runs, elevating the obscurity and the prices. But people who can't help but pay a couple hundred bucks for the VHS copy with the alternative cover for Madhouse probably wouldn't, won't mind dropping $35 on the special edition 180-gram pink-green swirl vinyl copy of Papaya, Love Goddess of the Cannibals. For what it's worth, most horror soundtrack vinyl is creatively and gorgeously packaged and as appealing visually as they are sonically. Given that soundtracks are by their very nature an accompaniment to a visual medium, it makes sense that the look of sleeves and record are such an integral piece. Even in the high-priced world of reissue vinyl, horror soundtracks stand out as crafted masterpieces that go so far beyond the original version of the record or cassette tape, or like in many cases when there wasn't ever a release of the soundtrack at all. Unlike music reissues that often try to meticulously mimic the original release or jam-pack so much new information and pictures into their updated copy that it feels academic, horror soundtracks seem to relish the fact that they have a tabula rasa for the majority of their releases. They have fun with it all. The flashier, the weirder, the creepier, the better. Like Britney Spears. If you have the dark impulse and the hedonistic abandon, there are plenty of labels who are specializing in making these incredible reissues. Reissue labels have a tough task. You have to find the music, acquire the rights, find original or at least usable sources, and then create a product that will be competitive in an extremely persnickety market. All this sometimes for music that was never meant to be released commercially. The rest of this turntable talk will be dedicated to talking about the labels that are spectacularly summoning from the dead scores of terrifying scores. Death Waltz Recording Company took its name from the chilling final song on the seminal Suspiria soundtrack in 2011 and hasn't looked back. The label was started by Spencer Hickman, who was the Record Store Day coordinator in the UK and, along with its American partner Mondo Music, has become the foremost purveyor of horror, cult, sci-fi, and other genre-specific reissues with stunning results. They work closely with composers and commission incredible original artwork. They have too many amazing releases to begin to list, but at least check out their work to make Italian movie and TV composer Fabio Frizzi a household name. Well, if your house is the last on the left, or contains a thousand corpses, or, or is on a haunted hill, or, well, you know. 
Mondo Acid burned themselves into the vinyl collector's consciousness by releasing a run of only 75 copies of the Alien soundtrack on clear vinyl filled with liquid green xenomorph blood. If you can find a copy, you may have to drop a grand to snag it. Game over, man! Game over! Another popular early Death Waltz release was the blood-red splatter on clear vinyl reissue of the soundtrack for the 1979 Zombie 2 or Zombie Flesh Eaters, which combined tribal rhythms and skin-rippin' synthesizer. Fritzi stated that a major inspiration for the film music was the crescendo at the end of A Day in the Life. Or maybe Mal Evans's alarm clockwork. Here's the brain-devouring finale. Speaking of The Last House on the left, that soundtrack for the Exploitation Horror is one of the flagship releases for One Way Static Records. One Way Static is a huge name in horror releases, based in Belgium and founded in 2012. And they have raised the stakes in making releases extensive and expansive, often including essays on cultural impact of the releases and bonus music. Other fantastic releases include music from The Blob, Cannibal Holocaust, and a bunch of Pulp Vu soundtracks. Here's a clip of the eerily out-of-place freak folk music from The Last House soundtrack. Emerging as a rival to Death Waltz Mondo and One Way Static in 2013, Waxworks Records has set the standard for high-quality horror vinyl sourced from original tapes for both big-name and B-list films. We especially love how they color the vinyl with the movie in mind, like the treatment of Harry Manfredini's Friday the 13th Part 3 is made to look like a bloody hockey mask, reanimator on reagent glowing green vinyl, or the special edition of Morricone's The Thing soundtrack, which is one of the most beautiful colored records we've ever laid eyes on. An Antarctic continent-inspired blob of opaque white center surrounded by a translucent navy blue sea of vinyl. We will definitely post a picture. It's absolutely stellar. It could only be made better if it came with a replica version of Kurt Russell's hat. That is a, a great hat in that movie. It is, and that's one of the prettiest pieces of vinyl I've ever seen pictures of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how many copies they made, but it's probably a lot like the Aliens where they made 75. I mean, they just they don't make many, and they're incredibly expensive once they get released. Silver Screen Records is a London-based record company that has been in the soundtrack wax business for longer than 40 years with a number of classics, including Magnet's Amazing Folk Horror, Wicker Man, Carpenter's best soundtrack that almost killed me, The Fog, and Pino Donaggio's Don't Look Now. Moreover, Silva has 
also gained the rights to a number of fantastic BBC soundtracks, the coveted experimental BBC Radiophonic Studio, and the perfect goth schlock of Hammer Horror. Here's Pino Dinaggio's Don't Look Now. Savannah, Georgia's Terror Vision has honed in on releasing horror movies and music that have sadly flown under the radar, even in horror circles. The so-bad-they're-good B-movie stuff. Run by Ryan Graveface of Casket Girls and Black Moth Super Rainbow fame, the label not only puts out killer soundtracks, but also the lost classic and new oddball movies themselves. The music is rescued from obscurity, and the vinyl is lovingly crafted. An absolute master of the macabre, Graveface also puts out an annual Halloween multimedia project and record under the moniker of Marshmallow Ghost, which are always unique and very collectible. The release that struck me to my soul was the Terror Vision reissue of a deeply curated score of the ghostly episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. That theme, and the image of Robert Stack's trench coat harkens back to a part of my youth I thought I left behind and still sends me into a sleep paralysis night terror. Oh, I hated that soundtrack, Unsolved Mysteries. It scared me. I did I, when I was a kid. I did not like to be in the room when it went on. It kind of reminded me of uh, children abductions. For me, it was uh, Night Gallery. Oh, like Rod Serling. Yeah. Jeff Barrow of Portishead runs the label Invada that specializes in outsider alternative music, including some pretty stellar newer horror releases. With an ear for the more progressive and technical composers, Invada has great releases of more recent films and television shows like Black Mirror, Stranger Things, Hannibal, Annihilation, and Bone Tomahawk, which also features a great Kurt Russell hat performance. There's a theme. (laughs) Working closely with Invada is Lakeshore Records, which is the independent music division of Lakeshore Productions and releases a lot of stuff jointly. Lakeshore holds the rights on New World Pictures films, which had a bunch of horror stalwarts, including that lovable extra-dimensional Cenobite himself, Pinhead, and the Hellraiser series. Fun fact about Hellraiser is that the English experimental proto-industrial band Coil recorded an insane score for it, but it was too much for the movie studios and they canned it. The band eventually released it as an album called The Unreleased Themes for Hellraiser. Pretty clever title. (laughs) Verese Sarabande is the old guard of horror labels. Started in 1972 as a vehicle for avant classical works, it soon started releasing soundtrack stuff. While deluxe reissues are, of course, a lot of fun, often you can't beat the charm of original packaging and artwork. They are reissuing a lot of pretty cool stuff, like my personal favorite, Jeff Goldblum as an insect movie, The Fly. I thought you were going to say The Big Chill. 
joining the big leagues of labels, Milan Records was just acquired by Sony Masterworks in July of 2019. However, for the past 40 years or so, Milan was huge in putting out electronic music and soundtracks. The catalog is vast, but notable horror releases include the torture horror series Saw and newer horror soundtracks like Neon Demon, Hereditary, and The Witch, which we will be entranced by in just a few moments. Several other labels are not specifically horror soundtrack labels, but they are worth keeping an eye out for. Finders Keepers puts out a huge range of very cool obscurities and genre-twisting records. Check out their gorgeous reissue of Valerie's Week of Wonders or Polish composer Andrzej Korzynski's Possession. Brooklyn-based Sacred Bones is a fine independent label known for their dark and experimental catalog with post-punk leanings, but has to be acknowledged for great John Carpenter and David Lynch reissues. Fellow Brooklynites, Shipped Ashore Phono Company, has made a point to put the unusual and underappreciated classics by releasing stuff from Tiny Tim and Paul Williams' Holy Mackerel, but also unearth some crazy soundtracks, including the bizarro jazz odyssey of Hal P. Warren's Manos, The Hands of Fate. process and care that these labels take in the unearthing of these abandoned artworks makes them a natural fit for vinyl. It beckons for an experiential listening by fanatical devotees. Both appeals to the collector sensibilities, but are sympathetic to the disregard of the original conceptualization in favor of artistry expansion and imaginativeness. The warmth and depth of the vinyl sound perfect for the music, which has become the main attraction since separating itself from its visual companion. And since we mentioned Tiny Tim, would, for the love of everything unholy, some intrepid label please release the soundtrack for the lower-than-low budget clown slasher flick Blood Harvest, starring the man himself, Tiny Tim, as Marvelous Mervo. Joe and I might just have to start a label to ensure that the world can hear this bloodthirsty falsetto eking from their stereos. <laughs> oh, marvelous Mervo, at your service. Marvelous Mervo, that's my name. And I'll do my best to entertain you with magic and laughter. Cause that's my game, I could light up the sky each day at sunrise and darken the clouds when it's time to rain. That's some of the magic I have mastered. I'll show you the rest when you call my name. I wanna make the whole world laugh, even if the laugh's on me. Oh, I paint a smile upon my face, there for everyone to see. So put a smile on your face Like your old friend Mervo Whenever you're feeling low and blue Like marvelous Mervo You'll soon discover A smile can do magical things for you But I guess that's the great thing about horror soundtracks. There's such a wealth of barely known and unheard brilliant music that lies dormant in dusty VHS and Betamax boxes from the deranged minds who were on the outskirts of society. 
So much more weirdness and terror hidden in the closet, holding its breath, waiting to impale some unsuspecting, half-dressed teens. It never dies, and you know there's going to be a sequel. Now, do you have any of those, like, crazy Mondo reissues that are absolutely amazing to look at? I don't. I've got a few horror reissues that I'm going to play, but it's such kind of a niche market, and it's a lot of money to break into. But like I said earlier, uh, the Halloween 3 soundtrack is is kind of on my radar. It looks amazing. And, it's uh, a really good soundtrack, It's good too. stuff, yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, I used to DJ Halloween shows, so for a while I had good reason to to collect, but now it's just... Just want to want to sit by myself and scare myself. <laughs> Do you have any? No, I sure don't. I don't have a ton of soundtracks as it is, and just don't know if I'd listen to them. And that's what I really want to focus on with with records for me, for the most part. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of with you. I think, like I said, I have a couple, but I do wonder if some of the sound is a little bit secondary to the visual aspect of it. And that's totally fine. I, d- I don't know that. I'm, sh- yeah, I'm sure they sound great, but I think there's just so much put into how it looks and the color of the vinyl and all that stuff and and how cool of a collector piece it is that I fear that maybe the music is a little bit secondary to probably to a lot of people who collect them. The sort of thing that you would get to post on Instagram and show off rather than mm-hmm. really play a lot. And that's fine. I mean, I really have no issue with that. But Yeah, the labels and the fans just have such enthusiasm for the packaging and the music. But yeah, I think I think the packaging is first. It's just so it's often so impressive. Like more so than almost any other genre. They're really just knocking it out of the park right now. It seems like the sort of thing that people get go pretty deep into, like a deep dive. I think you and me just like to collect what we love and lots of different things, but it seems like it's really kind of one of those things that people really tend to specialize in. Yeah, absolutely. But it was fun to do a show about kind of the history of it because I've always been interested in it, you know, and it may not be something that a lot of people want to go deep into, but I think there's a lot of music that's worth hearing to show the the width of types of music for horror movies. Really, I mean, it really kind of impressed me there's a lot more than i thought Mm -hmm. kind of more than just kind of synthy dark stuff and it ties in really nicely with the library music too often a lot of people flow from that into this and back and forth oh and that italian stuff is is crazy i mean it's it's great music we we may have to at some point come back and and do do a whole episode on it because it's it's really great music it's a lot of music we don't know and that's just sort of the stuff we like and i think we should probably mention that there's a bunch of like great musicians and composers that we didn't touch on, even though they're probably pretty big in the horror world. Uh, we didn't talk about Christopher Young or Charles Bernstein, John Harrison, Denny Zetlin, Harry Manfredonini. I'm sure I didn't say that right. And Pino Dinaggio. We mentioned them, but that we didn't give them any time, but both of them, you know, their names that pop up. And of course there's like rock and pop music that was kind of, put into horror soundtracks. Our friend Matthew mentioned a couple that are seem really cool. Have you ever heard of Phantom of Paradise? No, I had not heard that until 
um, until you mentioned it earlier. <laughs> I have not ever heard of it. I want to find it. Did you go listen to any of it? Yes. It's crazy. It's like, it's one of like Brian De Palma's early movies. And it's like this bizarro Faustian glam rock opera. <laughs> it's like if Roger Corman directed Rocky Horror Picture Show. I mean, it just looks really great. <laughs> He also said uh, the Fright Night soundtrack had like great 80s music like Devo and Sparks. And, of course, there's a ton of bad metal soundtracks like Demon Knight or Dokken Dream Warrior for Nightmare 3. I got a story about that, too. One day I, I received a, a record package on my porch, and I, I hadn't ordered any records. So I was like, what is this? I thought maybe you had sent me something or, you know, I don't know. So I opened it up. I was really excited. <laughs> And it was Dawkins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that's I, so sad. Yeah, it was very disappointing. And so I, I, tr- I saw the name, so I traced it back to an order I'd done on Discog, and I think the guy just kind of messed up the label. So he's like, hey, do you mind sending it to the person it goes to? I said, no. <laughs> Somebody really wanted that Dawkins record. So, And, of course, there's a bunch of like cool pop musicians doing soundtracks too, like uh, Tom, Tom with an H, York. I was going to ask you if you would if we were going to if you were going to talk about Suspiria. Have you listened to his version of? Mm-mm, I haven't, but people on Instagram love to post pictures of it. Have you listened to it? <laughs> I have not. No, <laughs> was, that, was that a mean thing no, to say? I have no interest in that at all. No, pe- I think people on Instagram love to post pictures of anything Tom York related, just in general, right? Yeah, I I guess, but like. You know, there's some records that they seem to just go crazy over posting, and that is one of them. I haven't heard, I haven't seen the new movie either. I haven't heard great things, but um, yeah, I have not. I have not seen it either. Whereas the original by Goblin is, you know, one of my favorites. I think I played that on the Halloween episode last year. Did you ever see the movie Ravenous? Yes. Um, yep. The guy from Blur, Damon, was it Auburn? Auburn. Al- Auburn. Auburn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, he did the soundtrack for that, and I remember that being really good. Yeah, I do too. If you could get one uh, one vinyl soundtrack for a horror movie, what would it be? Man, one that does exist or does not yet exist? Uh, both. Okay, okay. Honestly, I would probably, like I mentioned before, it would be for Night Gallery. I know it's a TV show, not a movie, but that's the one I would want. That's a good answer. What about you? For one that hasn't been released yet, there was a British show. This is um, it's a TV show, so but I guess you picked a TV show, so you cheated, so I can cheat. There's a British TV show, kids show called Children of the Stones, that had a great theme. I'd love to have a seven inch of that on vinyl. And it's never it's never been released. I doubt it. I mean, I think they just barely put it back out on DVD. Huh. So I wonder if it was library music, and we could. You know, you could potentially find it somehow. I don't know. That's a. I, I haven't really should, researched it. I was just thinking about that, but that's a good, good thought. We should try to find it. Anybody out there, try to find that for Ryan, please. Please send it to me. Okay, I guess it's time to play some songs. All right, I guess I'm going to start today. My first song is by a guy named Jim Manzi, and it's called Tension the Magistrate. (laughs) 
All right, that was Jim Manzi, Manzi with Tension the Magistrate, and that was from a uh, the soundtrack for, to From a Whisper to a Scream. From a Whisper to a Scream is a 1987 anthology horror film that starred Vincent Price. He was like the old innkeeper type guy and telling tales of horror. And I have a uh, 2015 uh, reissue of the soundtrack on Terrorvision, which we mentioned in the show. That's the Savannah, Georgia label. And it's a great soundtrack. It's it's just your perfect low-budget synthy soundtrack that harkens back to Halloween and Psycho. And um, it's on just an amazing-looking vinyl. It's one of those beautiful vinyls that's it's like a purple trans translucent purple and blue that's got a black and pink splatter. Of course, I'll post a picture. Just a beautiful vinyl and a lot of fun. And I was at the um, shop and, you know, kind of wanted to pick something up. I was thinking about doing this for Halloween, so I wanted to pick something up. And it, it was great. The Jim Manzi guy, he, he's done a bunch of scores, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 and Pumpkinhead 2, Blood Surf. But just a fun, synthy 80s B-movie slasher horror movie soundtrack. Perfect. I'd never heard of him at all. That's I'm great. Not, I mean, I don't think people have. <laughs> you know, I think even pretty, pretty unknown even in horror circles. But that's kind of what Terror Vision specializes in. All right. For my first track, I'm going to play a song by our beloved Scott Walker. The song is called Down the Stairs. All right, that was Scott Walker 
with a song called Down the Stairs, and that was from a soundtrack released in 2016 from a movie called The Childhood of a Leader. It's a 30-minute soundtrack, and it just sort of continues nicely with Scott Walker's other experimental work, um, like Drift and Tilt and Bish Bosh, with this one actually featuring a 62-piece orchestra. And as you probably noticed in that clip, it's very Bernard Herrmann-esque, um, if not just kind of an outright homage. It happens through the entire soundtrack. It's like he's updating Herman's sound uh, sound with kind of a, a sinister earthquake of claustrophobic aggressive noise. It's horror music for a movie about an up-and-coming fascist. It's actually based on a, a Sartre story, but very loosely. The songs are very short, uh, and there isn't any of Scott Walker singing, so you don't get to hear his impressive voice, but it's just a, really amazing. It's him basically showing off that he can con compose for an orchestra within and still keep it within the scope of that all that madness in his head that has been his studio albums from basically 1995's Tilt or maybe even The Electrician from 78. He may be the greatest at making music that really like disturbs you. Yeah, that nobody else has ever made and nobody else will probably ever be able to make again. It disturbs you, but it's also beautiful and you want to listen to it. It's, I, I just don't know how he does it. He's, he's incredible. Yep. And that was on 4AD Records. I didn't mention that. But yeah, it's it's got a magnetic charm to it, even though it is um, unnerving. And then speaking of unnerving, my <laughs> next track is by a guy named Brother Theodore. And this track is called... Lizaletta Bindel. Lizaletta Bindler. Lizaletta Bindler. Lizaletta Bindler. She and I were cousins, and we grew up together in my family's ancestral castle. But we grew up differently. I was ill of health, always wrapped in gloom, while she, swift, nimble, graceful, roamed through life, plucking its flowers. Lizalotta Bindle, hauntress of my dreams, your image is vivid before me, your wind-blown hair, your witching eyes, your fragrant lips, your lovely young form. Oh. Athlete's foot! Yes, a sudden fit of athlete's foot befell her, took hold of her feet, her body, her mind, and her habits, and in a manner most subtle, most hideous, corrupted the very essence of her being. In the brightest days of her beauty, I had never desired her at all. But now, a sickly, frenzied passion for that itchy chick began to obsess me. An incomprehensible craving. And in an evil moment, I brought up the question of making. Buchweizenbrütze, she said. And I still didn't know where I stood. I, I could only stare at her. Her hair was a dank yellow and fell over her temples like sauerkraut. Her face was sweaty like a chunk of rancid pork and covered all over with pipple poppers and slushy pips. And as I 
stared and stared, her lips, her thin, shrunken lips parted, and in a smile of maiden modesty, her teeth revealed themselves to me. The moving of a curtain, the closing of a door, Lizelotte Bindel had left the room, but my mind still clung to the image of her teeth. Not one speck on their surface, not one shadow on their enamel had escaped me. They had burned themselves into my memory. They had bitten themselves into my brain. They were small, narrow and pointed, cold and capricious. They glistened like rusty nails in the moon. Those teeth, those glittering teeth, those luring, quivering, beckoning, promising pearls of teeth. They were my destiny. They are my destiny. Lizelotte Bindle, no good hussy and sheep floozy. The hell with her, you can have her with bells on. I want her teeth. I want them now. Her teeth. That was Brother Theodore with Lizaletta Bindle. That was actually originally released in 1972 as a single on PIP Records, which is Pickwick International Productions. I have it. Uh, it was included with or as a 7-inch for 2019 Record Store Day, a release of an album by Brother Theodore called Fate Conspires with Destiny to Do Me Dirt, which was a collection of his stand-up material from 1959 to 72. They're all monologues about death and cousins and teeth. <laughs> when I was a kid, I would watch him. He was on David Letterman a lot. He would appear there on that show quite a bit. And I was always terrified of him, and I never understood whether whether it was a joke or whether he was really a crazy guy. Uh, he stayed in character so well, but I just always loved him i thought it was really amazing and this album collection is really nice it's some one person actually described him as boris karloff salvador dolly nijinsky and red skelton all at the same time which is nice brother theodore was he's actually born in germany he was in dachau the concentration camp when he was like 32 he came to america uh, with the help of albert einstein who may or may not have been Brother Theodore's mother's lover, I think, maybe. He's was a relative. A, very good. It's He was a chess hustler, and he performed these monologues from like 1950 up until he died like 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago now. Just an amazing, interesting, very dark 
comedian, sort of. He said he called himself a stand-up tragedian <laughs> but and podiatrist. But he's a really interesting guy. This Record Store Day release was actually put out by the Iron Mountain Analog Research Facility. And they're the ones who do all the Hillbillies in Hell, the Cold War Countdown, all those great various artist things like... The JFK ones. Yeah, Hangman's Blues, The World is a Monster, which is their newest one. They put out amazing stuff. They do. But it's an interesting track. There is a little music, music concrete, sort of, in the background there. Uh, but it's not something that most people have heard, I assume. Some weird stuff. Yeah, he's a weird guy. <laughs> All right, and I'm going to finish this off. Uh, this song is called A Witch Stole Sam, and it's off the Witch uh, soundtrack by Mark Corvin. soundtrack a witch stole sam that was put out in 2016 on milan records uh i got it about the same time as i saw the movie i'm really big into folklore stuff you know wicker man i've talked about before and just kind of that uh horror that's more based in rural areas and with pagan traditions and stuff like that, witchcraft and stuff like that. It's some of my favorite type of horror. So uh, I was really excited about this this movie, and I love the soundtrack. So I, I got a special edition gray vinyl of the soundtrack, which has turned out to be, like I said, with a lot of other stuff, pretty collectible, worth a little bit of money. But uh, this soundtrack is great. It's, it's, it's definitely a challenging listen, but... 
I was trying to figure out how he made the sound. So I was reading a couple interviews. There's two two things that he kind of mentioned. One is that he the backbone of the score is actually played on a Swedish instrument called a nickel harpa, which is sort of like a medieval keyed violin. And then the other thing that he used to make a lot of the stranger, unexpected sounds is a instrument he commissioned called the Apprehension Engine, which is a great name for an instrument. <laughs> it's basically this box with all these little gadgets hanging hanging off of it. There's just metal rulers, which are bowed. It's got like a hurdy-gurdy mechanism. It's got a some strings. Um, that are attached to an Ebo, so they vibrate. He can move the Ebo, and it can vibrate the strings. It's got a spring reverb that you can also play with the Ebo. Some just metal rods, just magnets, trash, just just this weird box. I'm gonna post a link to him playing it, and he talks about how he commissioned it. And a lot of the sounds you're hearing in a lot of horror movies now, I think a lot of people are using this. And he he took it on tour, like he made. He, he's toured with just that instrument to show people how it works, and he's made a few copies of it uh, to sell, but the apprehension engine. But anyways, um, some of the weird stuff you can hear on the song comes from that pretty cool instrument. Horror movies have a long history of using non-traditional instruments, um, which is really cool and makes sense that they would go outside the norm to create new and uncomfortable sounds. So, anyways, love that soundtrack. It's a great record. And that's it for songs. Let's uh, settle up on some trivia. Perfect. Let's try it. All right, Joe. So, I know you've, uh, I know you got to listen at the beginning of the show. We're going to let you listen one more time. Remember, there are 12 horror um, movies represented in this clip, um, some by the soundtrack, some by clips. Um, some by characters talking. So all you have to do is just tell me how many of the 12 you can figure out. But let me go ahead and play it one more time. Joe, what you got? All right, not a whole lot. Um, but I will I will give it my my well, give it what I have. <laughs> uh Halloween. Yes. Absolutely. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yep. The uh the infamous chainsaw scene at the end. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sounded like a clip from Child's Play. Yep, there's a little bit of Chucky in there. Okay. The Exorcist was in there towards the end. Absolutely. Psycho was in there. Yep. The Shining? There's no Shining. Nope. 
Friday the 13th. Yes. And those are the ones I had. Okay, I don't know what... Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, I didn't even get half. And I knew The Shining was wrong. I don't know why... Oh, it, it, it would be hard kind of. to get them all. Some of them are really embedded in there. Um, you can hear them all. I made sure I could hear them all, mm-hmm. but... Okay, so the the progressive songs go... Like you said, there was Halloween first, and then Jaws jumps in. Oh, and Jaws man. is hard to hear. And then you got Friday the 13th, and then there's Nightmare on Elm Street, which you just may not know very well, and then Exorcist and Psycho. So you did pretty good on those. Okay. At the beginning, there is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the tech, the chainsaw sound from the end when he's kind of wailing it around after the one girl mm-hmm. escapes. Then there's a little bit of Chucky. And then there's a little bit of Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs. I didn't get that at all. Okay, I didn't hear it's that. It's right one. after Chucky. It. Right after Chucky. Okay. And then this is the one where I'd be really impressed if you got it. Then there's the chest bursting scene from Alien. So you can you can oh, wow. hear the chest bursting. Okay. And then there's the bucket drop scene from Carrie. Okay. And then the last part that you can hear at the very end is Pennywise from the TV movie It, uh, the Tim Curry. Right, right. So. More Tim Curry mentioned. Yeah, he's pretty creepy dude. He yes, very much so. Yep. Great job. I love that one. I thought they all sounded really cool together. Yeah, I was kind of happy with how it turned out. I really like doing those. They take a little bit longer. And I I knew I don't think it'd be I mean, by by all means, audience, if you got more than Joe, please let me know. I want to know how many you got. I really feel dumb for not getting Nightmare on Elm Street and Jaws. Those are the ones I should have added in there. And I suppose you could have probably guessed the most popular movie scores and probably got it. Yeah, I didn't want to just guess classics, but I should have at least done that. Those those two. Oh, well. Yeah, if anybody got the chest bursting from Aliens or the the bucket drop it from Carrie, let me know. Because those are, I think, the two, two ones that would probably be the hardest to pick out. But I think that about wraps it up. I want to again say thank you to Matthew. Um, he's our good buddy. And he's the one that almost killed me with the fog. Um, but he was a huge help on the. He's a, he's a horror movie buff. And he, he really gave me some good recommendations, like off the beaten path stuff. So really appreciate him helping out. And, of course, we want to thank uh, Pantheon Podcast Network. They're part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. And they are our uh, podcast network that helps support us and bring new audience to us. And lots of great shows. Um from like-minded people who love love music. So uh, check out some of the, the different podcasts on the network. Uh, we're, we're proud to be part of them and to be collaborating with some great people. So for social media, we have Instagram and Twitter, and our handle for both of those is at Highway Hi-Fi Pod. You can find us on Facebook, and you can email us anytime you like at podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, reach out. Let us know you're out there. Please. We really, every time I kind of pitch an idea to Joe, I'm like, let's just do uh, John Carpenter and some horror soundtrack stuff. And Joe's like, yeah, that'd be great. That sounds fun and easy. And and then we spend 50 hours on researching and I keep adding more and more. But I really like doing these big genre ones that hopefully if you listen to, you get a good idea of some of the the high points of horror soundtracks. But uh, like I said, we, we appreciate if you've made it this far and listened to the whole thing. We, we appreciate everybody who's, who's listening. It, it 
makes it a lot of fun for us and, and hopefully you're enjoying it. If you have any ideas for stuff or if you have any great soundtracks that we missed or ideas for topics in the future, please, please let us know. We're always looking for ideas and we got some fun ones coming up hopefully too. And the last thing as always, we like to, uh, tell you to go out and support uh, musicians, support record stores, support people who are working hard to bring you fantastic music. Go out and and, uh, buy some horror vinyl. Get impulsive. Buy Halloween 3. That way, if you do, maybe I won't have to. But I probably will have to. Just make sure that you're supporting supporting great people. I will say that TerraVision in Savannah, Georgia... I went and shopped in the store, and and the the uh, Ryan Grayface was there. He's the owner, and he was working. He spent a lot of time explaining all his stuff and all he does. It's, I mean, their records are great, and that that from a whisper to a scream is just the most the coolest looking vinyl. So they would be great if you're looking to to find some great Halloween music for your party. Check out there for sure. All right, and I think that about wraps it up. So we will see you next time. Hey, it's Marcus in the Darkest. And Ray Coob here. The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is a podcast for the lover of rock and roll. Like many of the other Pantheon podcasts, we take a unique look at the entire rock and roll timeline in a non-traditional fashion. We look at events, we look at movements, moments, albums, tragedy, celebrations, and more. These are what make rock and roll rock and roll. And it's why the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is a juggernaut waiting for exploration and discussion. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Ooh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.